Awesome. Well, we are in the middle of a five-week teaching series. Actually, next weekend we're going to wrap it up, uh, called Enemies of the Heart. And uh, the reason why I wanted to start this series as your new lead pastor is really just because the heart is, is the critical piece in the discipleship process. And by discipleship, we mean uh, following Jesus and trusting him a little more than we did yesterday and really, really wholeheartedly following him. And it's not usually the head that gets in the way, it's the heart. Uh, Jewish thought believed two things about the heart. It was the seat of emotions, but it was also the place where decisions of the will were made. And so we said, uh, and we have been saying over this whole series, that who you are becoming as a person is more important than what you're doing. Uh, Jesus called these folks hypocrites, where the outward behavior looked really good, really good on paper. They were Pharisees were, <clears throat> excuse me, strong candidates to lead the church, but inwardly their, their heart was a wreck. Their, their inner life was just a mess. And so Jesus uses the language of hypocrites. And, and, and look, we can't fault the Pharisees because we all act Pharisaic at some point in our lives because we were taught at a young age, if you behave well, good things will happen to you, right? Uh, I, you'll get the, cook, the extra cookie after dinner. We'll sign you up for baseball. We'll, we'll give you the snack in the line at the grocery store. E even into our adulthood, if we behave well, even though we hate our boss's guts, that we've got a better shot at getting a raise. I'm preaching to somebody. Somebody better wake up, right? We've learned that good behavior, even though it's not reflected of our heart, can actually take us further, faster in life. And Jesus says, wait a minute. Wait, that's not what I've called you to. And so we've explored emotions that <clears throat> hold us back from the life Jesus invites us to. We talked about guilt. And guilt, if it could talk, would say, I owe you. I, there's something that I've done to you, and I feel a burden to pay you back. Last weekend, we talked about anger. And if anger could speak, anger would say, you owe me now. And today we're going to talk about greed. So I thought, you know what? Four weeks in, let's talk about money, right? Uh, they're either going to love me or burn me at the stake. But that's okay. Jesus talked about money more than any other subject in his ministry uh, outside of hell. I'll wait till week five. No, it'll be a while before we talk about that. But, but greed is such a big piece <clears throat> in following Jesus. And I just love Jesus. He's not a Sunday school kind of God. He just calls it as it is and says, look, you're going to interact with money. Money's going to come in and out of your hands throughout your life. Let's have a conversation about it, which I respect. <clears throat> what is the dumbest thing you've ever bought that you've later regretted? Wives, you can now elbow your husbands, okay? Uh, I, 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 like a good pastor in 2018, I took my question to Facebook. Some of you did not disappoint. Uh, there are some couples that spent two to $3,000 on a vacuum cleaner. I, I've never really don't know what that is. Um, and uh, luckily, one couple said we found out on the back the warrant, we could return it within 48 hours and we would get our money back. Uh, other couples have said, I don't know what it is about young couples, right? To be young, dumb, and in love, I guess. Uh, on their honeymoon, would sit in for a, um, oh, what do you call it? A, uh, a timeshare meeting, right? And they would get all excited and they'd buy it and they would later regret it. One couple, uh, when they were living in California, some friends of mine uh, actually said that they, they really needed a car in a bad way. It was a dead of winter, and they knew, they knew when they bought it that it did not have AC. 
They live in California. I don't think I need to continue this. As soon as March hit, they regretted not only buying the car, but the wife uh, encouraged my friend, her husband, to buy the $2,000 warranty. (laughs) We've all been there. You need to laugh at yourself. This is church. Relax, okay? It's okay to have fun in church. Um, we, th- there were two of my favorite stories where a, a gal from Illinois was dating a guy when she was 18 and put $2,000 on her personal credit card to bail her boyfriend out of jail, right? Is anybody awake in here? Yeah, <laughs> that's not a smart move. Uh, she has since moved on and married a legit dude. Um, not that you can't be legit after, I didn't mean anything by that. Um, one of, but my favorite story is um, a guy that I met in Colorado who thought it would be a good idea, and I'm not stuttering here, to spend $2,000 on an Encyclopedia Britannica set. Anybody remember those commercials? <laughs> well, weighing in over 500 pounds, and I quote, because where else are you going to find that much information in one source to which everybody's saying, Google, right? Just look it up, right? This is the dumbest purchase I've ever made in my life. This is a 2003 uh, Ford Ranger, and you'll see why I'm making that face in a a minute here. Um, My Ford Aspire, Periwinkle Aspire, a very manly car, uh, broke down, and I convinced my dad. So if you already know where this is going, if you were here last week and I talked about anger and my parents' uh, divorce and the substance abuse that racked our family uh, to, to the divorce court. I convinced my dad, I, I need to buy a reliable car. Listen, guys, you know where I'm going with this, because I need something to get me from Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, 10 hours away to Joplin, Missouri for college. Now, reliable can, is subjective, right? You can buy a three to $5,000 car that it's reliable, but not Ben Seaman. No, I, I wanted something off the lot. And my mom was not very happy with this. Uh, my mom is not into cars, but she does have common sense. And she said, Ben, the second you make a left <coughs> off the lot, it's going to depreciate in value. She was right. Four months later, I called my folks. I can't make the payments. I think the payments were 320 bucks a month. I'm in ministry. Uh, there's no signing bonus in, in this field. <laughs> I was working at Chick-fil-A right? Frying my life away by getting zits standing over the fryer. I said, I can't afford, I can't afford this payment. Will you please take the car? My dad said, sure. They were, he was leasing an F-150. It was up. He took the car and agreed to make the payments. And I said, you know what? I'll just bum rides off of friends at college. And so I had to kind of keep a mental log of who I asked. So I wouldn't be too overbearing. Uh, Fast forward a year later, I'm home for Christmas and my, um, I, I get a letter from Ford, and my brother Nathan, he's a year younger than me, brings home his new girlfriend from college, which would later be now his wife. This is the first time she's ever interacted with me. And my mom said, you have a letter from Ford. Do you know what this is about? No idea. Open the letter. It basically says, we can't find your dad. Nobody's made a payment in 14 months. If somebody doesn't pay half the, half the loan in the next 30 days, uh, you and your dad are going to be subpoenaed and probably go to jail. I'm 21. Like, I'm studying to be a pastor, and I don't know if I can get credit for time served or not. And so l- luckily, uh, we had two family members on my dad's side. Uh, one was a lawyer, 
Another one was an accountant. They paid the 8000 8600 bucks. Yeah, of course I remember. Uh, the 8600 that was left on the truck, and I spent the rest of my college years paying them a couple hundred bucks a month as I could. The dumbest purchase ever. Oh, wait a minute. I forgot to tell you this. Uh, so I'm in the car with my dad because it, it gets better. I'm in the truck with my dad who somehow, who has a substance abuse problem with drugs, got a job delivering medicine to nursing homes throughout the middle of the night through Indiana, Kentucky, Ohio. Hey, don't hate the play. I hate the game, all right? And so we're, sit, we're sitting in the truck, and I'm like, Dad, like, I think this is illegal. You have to pay people that you said you, pro- you co-signed here. I don't want to go to jail for this. And as we're trying to come up with a plan, as my dad says, a deer comes out of nowhere. We literally, we, sorry, but we split it in half totaling the, the truck, and we made our way back to my dad's house. I called Ford and said, I found the truck. And they took the truck and took it away, and that's when I began making payments. We, we've, look, we've all done terrible, dumb, regrettable things with our finances. Uh, but greed has a sneaky way of creeping up in our lives. Anger, we, we, we can see. That's what YouTube's for. We can see when people get angry. But, but, but greed... Man, greed is a sneaky emotion. In his book, Enemies of the Heart, Andy Stanley says this, greedy people believe they deserve every good thing that comes their way. They also believe that every possible good thing will come their way. So there's a sense of narcissism and arrogance. If if guilt says, I owe you, and anger says, you owe me, greed says, uh, I owe me. Des Bryant, a former Cowboys wide receiver, now trying to get onto the Browns, so his life is going well, uh, was, was once quoted as saying, I just want, I love, I love me some me. I'm all about me. And that's exactly what greed is into. There, there's some, de- there's some uh, characteristics of greedy people. I won't ask you to raise your hand. Uh, I wouldn't if I were you. But here's some characteristics of greedy people. Uh, they worry a lot about money. They're not cheerful givers. They're reluctant to share they're poor losers. I've, I always win, so I'm not a poor loser. They fight over insignificant sums of money. So this is someone that makes 100K and won't buy a Diet Coke for 237. You know, you know what I'm saying? They create a culture of secrecy around them. They won't let you forget what they've done for you. Guilt trips. Uh, this is huge in family dynamics. They're reluctant to express gratitude. Uh, they're not content with what they have attempt to control people with their money, and they love having inside information, but they will not share it. There, there's a, there's a, um, a thought in our culture that says money can't buy you happiness. They're lying. Uh, Todd Gurley, uh, I'm a big football fan, love fantasy football, uh, is a running back for the Rams, just signed a four-year, 60-million contract extension. You tell him that money won't make you happy. This is what he said. He said, whoever said money don't make you happy lied because he's telling the truth. Actually, statistically, if a family makes more than $77,000 or about $77,000 a year, uh, anything above that will not increase, increase your happiness. Actually, and it'll increase levels of stress, anxiety, and depression because you're afraid you're going to lose it. So statistically, the smart people, the men and women who study this, say that you're really not happier beyond $77,000, to which I would say, I'll take the $40 million. You could, you could test that on me, right? 
And so there, there's this false belief that more money will make us happy. Seth Godin, a researcher, blogger, great, great guy to follow if you're into blogs and podcasts, actually says the average family wishes they could have about $200 more a week, $10,000, $10,500 more a year, then everything would be better. But would it? Would everything be better? Would we be generous, generous with that, or we would just add it to our minimum visa payments? We, we talked about how every emotion, we can overcome every emotion with an antidote, and generosity is the antidote to greed. Jesus tells this very powerful story to two brothers that are at odds with each other uh, because one of them just inherited a lot of money, and the younger brother, surprise, he wants, he wants some me, more, more me for himself. He wants some cut of the money. And this is a conversation, <clears throat> excuse me, that happens in Luke 12. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, very professional, <laughs> uh, teacher, tell my brother, you ever bossed God around? Tell, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Then Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge and an arbitrator between you? I'm not a financial investor. Go talk to a professional. Jesus says, I'm, I'm a rabbi. I'm a theologian. I'm a teacher. I'm a life coach. Then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in abundance of possessions. What? Well, hold on. Hold on. Let me say that again. This is how Jesus defines quality of life to us as Americans. Life does not consist in abundance of possessions. So if at the end of your life, you have one pressing question you want to ask Jesus, and let's say, did I live a good quality life by the amount of stuff that I incurred and the amount of money I made? He, he, like that, that, that's very low on his radar. When he thinks about a life well lived, finances and our ability to acquire stuff is very low on the totem pole for Jesus. And you might expect that because if he is God, he owns everything anyways, right? So what's, what's 300K to him when he owns the Rocky Mountains? And so financial stuff is very low on the totem pole for him in terms of that person lived a good life. So he says, boys, let me tell you a story. He calls them parables. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He said to himself, well, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. One of the ways you can know you're in a wealthy community is by all the storage facilities that are in that community to hold their extra stuff. Then I will store my surplus grain. I will say to myself, you have, he's talking to, like, he's thinking by himself, there's no, there, there aren't any friends or counsel around him. I have plenty of grain laid up for many years. I'll take it easy, thinking of the eagles, eat, drink, and be merry. Verse 20, but God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then you will get what you have prepared for, or then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores things up for themselves, but is not rich towards God. Jesus says, listen, boys, I know you're asking for money because your father died. In Jewish tradition, when the father passed away, all the possessions would go to the eldest brother, just common Jewish practice. And so the younger brother, obviously, and I'm the oldest, so I'm like, this would be great. The youngest brother obviously wants his cut of the money. It's safe to guess that the father probably passed away three to four weeks before this. 
So instead of mourning his father's loss, the greatest question this man has for God in the flesh is tell my brother to give me my money. I want to enjoy more of me, right? That, that's his biggest, most pressing question. And Jesus says, wait a minute, boys. Let me tell you a story. If your character can't handle this surplus of money, you're going to be like a rich man who, who works the land and throws out his seeds and works and tills the land and has a surprisingly great harvest, but does not give credit to anybody else for the great harvest. He does not consider the God factor, the fact that rain has to happen, the fact that sun has to happen, the fact that terrible winds and tornadoes and monsoons can happen, otherwise he won't have a great crop. He's only thinking about himself. And when he builds bigger barns, he does not know this, but when he puts the lock on and goes inside to enjoy a nice tall glass of sweet tea, he will die of a heart attack that night. And then what? Where does all that wealth go to? Well, I think Jesus offers three, probably more, three insights for us. And the first is this, that generosity plays the long game. Greed plays the short game. And Jesus said it this way in Matthew 16. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet they forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? This man was so greedy. He was so focused on the here and now. He did not consider the length of his life. He thought that a lot of money meant a lot of time to enjoy it. But what he didn't realize, he was going to go home and drop dead of a heart attack that night. Just because we have a lot of wealth doesn't mean we have the time to enjoy it. So Jesus says, watch out. Be careful what money does to you and how you spend it. Another way to ask this, is it really worth playing the short game if it costs you the long game? When I was in Colorado, uh, our students were part of an IB program, and it's an international baccalaureate. Basically, you are competing for your GPA with high school students around the world. Pretty intense. So like, like a football player who might uh, run in the morning, go to class during the day, and do you know, work out at night and games on the weekend, an IB student would constantly be studying. Thank God ministry is available because I, I would not make it to the IB program. Several students came to my wife and I and our adult leaders completely distraught, stressed out of their minds. I remember talking to one of my uh, favorite students. Student pastors have those. Sorry, parents. And uh, I, I said, is all of this really worth it? And she's like, what are you talking about? Well, I mean, what if you go to school in your... In your um, your roommate went to a regular high school. Uh, you both get the same GPA in college, land the same jobs at the same company, and make with within five to seven thousand dollars of each other. Is, is it really worth it? Now, what I was trying to tell her and get her to see, she wasn't being greedy. But what greed can do to you is make you think like a manager in the business world, and a manager thinks everything is important and everything is urgent right now. And what's important and what is urgent is what they can see. And so for, for this man that Jesus is talking about and for my friends that I love dearly back in Colorado, the students, for them, everything was important, everything was urgent, everything was all or nothing now. And just thinking about it stresses me out. I'm sure as it stresses you out. And when we get so bogged down in the short game, 
the short game, we miss out on the long game. We, we miss out on while we're busy, and, and many of you have kids, you're working 50, 60 hours a week, we, we, we can forget to develop our souls. And creed, or creed, greed can easily sneak into our lives, unbeknownst to us. And then once we're knee deep into it, man, it's for some of us, it's, it's too little, too late. Uh, our culture suffers from BBS. Have you ever had a case of the BBSs? Bigger barn syndrome, right? Where the, the point of our life is to incur as much wealth as we possibly can. Again, Andy Stanley in his book, Enemy of the Heart, says this. While it's true that the landowner planned ahead, he didn't plan far enough ahead. He was right. He did, not, he did need to consider his future, but not in the way that he thought. He was presuming on years he didn't have coming to him, just as he overlooked the God factor when evaluating his good agricultural fortune. The landowner has overlooked the God factor when counting how many years he actually had left. He played the short game. And it cost him his life. Secondly, generosity protects, but greed demands. In Proverbs 4.23, the writer says, above all else. So this is the most important thing, okay? We all do good things, but there are a few ultimate things that we need to be doing every single day. Above all else, guard your heart. Think about this. He says, guard your heart. For everything, everything flows from your heart. When I was in seminary, studying to be a pastor, Dr. Uh, David Roadcup told a story of when he was in ministry near Boulder, Colorado, and there was a <clears throat> soldier that went to his church, and it was his job to guard the security gate base. Now, on this base, they would uh, develop hand grenades and the clips for the hand grenades. A, a reporter <clears throat> came up to the gate for a press conference. And he said, I, I need to get into the press conference. And the soldier and the news reporter, th they knew each other. This happens all the time. And he said, great, let me see your credentials. And the reporter says, okay, I, 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 I left them on the kitchen table right by the cereal bowl. Can I, can I, I, I have to get in. And the soldier said, look, I, I can't let you in. You don't have your credentials. And, and the news reporter is starting to get very angry. He's like, no, you don't understand. <clears throat> this is my job, to which the soldier put his hand on his gun and said, no, you don't understand. This is my job to guard the, this base. You cannot get in with, without the proper credentials. I need you to put your car in reverse and go back home and grab your credentials, and hopefully you can get in before the conference starts. So he puts it in reverse, and he begins stewing and yelling and <clears throat> revving the engine, and the tires are moving, and, and, and the rocks are going everywhere, and he just yells out this explicitive and, and turns around and drives home. That's why the writer says, guard your heart. This is not a passive-aggressive thing. This is an active thing. Generosity is smart enough to know that greed is going to find every which way to get inside of your heart and your life. And if you're not firm in protecting your heart from greed, it will find its way to sneak into your life and it'll be too little too late. That's why the writer of Scripture says you need to guard your heart. Paul says in other letters, you need to stand firm as a soldier at his post. Being generous 
is not just about giving money to everybody everywhere. We'll get to that in a second. Being generous has an element of being discerning with where the money the Lord has given you, where you think it should go. And if you're not guarding your heart against any of these emotions, really, then they have full access into your life. And it will keep you from living the life that Jesus invites you into. I believe in John 10, where he says, I've come to give you life to the fullest. Like I've created this world for you and I want you to get every single drop out of it before you die and we spend eternity together. But, but if these emotions are arresting your soul and holding, your, holding you back, you will miss out on some of the things that I have for you. The third and final thing is this, friends. Generosity is content, but greed is relentless. In Proverbs 22.3, the writer says, the prudent see danger, right? This, the guard at his post. The prudent sees danger and they take refuge, but the simple keep going and they pay the penalty. Man, that last phrase is critical, right? I, I've been there with the truck. The simple keep going and they pay the penalty, right? They begin to have conversations in their head. My, 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 my debt's not that big. I can keep going. I don't want to take out another credit card, but, but, but you know, the kids need whatever. We, 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 we've all been there, haven't we? And the writer says, the simple keep going and ultimately will pay the penalty. When, when the writer says simple, it's the same idea as the word Jesus uses when he calls this rich man a fool. Now, we don't have time to get into it, but there are four or five Hebrew understandings of what a fool is. And in this case, a fool is someone that is so open-minded, any idea can pass in and out of his life. And, he, and he, will, he or she will subject themselves to whatever the latest fad is, whatever the best get-rich uh, scheme is, whatever the best financial plan is. They will ultimately go for that because they're not content. Greedy people are constantly restless, and they're not secure in who they are as, as a human, but also they don't trust that God owns everything, and it also belongs to us as we are heirs of Christ. I want to give you a few other ideas under this topic. Uh, as Christians, we are managers, not owners of Jesus' money, which is something that as Americans we don't want to hear because we think we own everything. And I, I love that, the reason why Jesus tells that story, because ultimately, we don't own the money that the Lord allows us to acquire. We manage it, which gives us a different perspective, because managers feel responsibility. Owners feel guilt. In other words, if you were to go into a financial planner's office this week, and you said, here's my portfolio, manage my money. And if they began to have sweaty palms and feel guilty and all these emotions overcome them, chances are you're going to walk out of that meeting and say, no, you're not touching my money. Because you don't want a financial investor to feel that way. You want them to feel the weight of the responsibility of managing your assets, right? Your family's future <clears throat> is on the line. In the same way, Jesus expects us with his money that he allows us to acquire to feel not guilty about it, but to feel responsibility so that his kingdom can keep growing and make an impact in Rockingham County, throughout New England, and throughout the world. We're not supposed to feel guilty with Jesus' money. 
We're supposed to feel the weight of responsibility. And that, my friends, is a very good thing. As the writer in First Chronicles says, Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. L- listen, listen. If, if, if a Jewish father dies and the eldest gets everything that belongs to the father, how much more do you think you're going to get as a Christian and a co-heir of Christ, if everything the Father created in Genesis belongs to the Son, and if anyone belongs to the Son, it's all yours anyways. Everything. You like the Rocky Mountains? It's yours. You like the Tetons? They're yours. You, you, you like swimming in the... It's yours. Everything is yours as heirs of Christ. Don't feel guilty about the resources you have. Feel the weight of responsibility. If you were to, I think, peg Jesus in a corner, hey, good luck, and say, Jesus, what is your why? Why do you exist? He would say this. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And part of churches helping people find Christ and follow Christ is that there is a generosity in the ethos of their church that we want as many people in our services and experience and expanding throughout Rockingham County in the next couple of years, which I'm praying that is, that is a reality of this church, that ultimately at the end of the day, it's about people being transformed by the gospel in one way. One way we serve people who are not yet in the seats is that we step into generosity and the life transformation that we experienced here other people get to experience it. And then, it, and then the light bulbs go on and they step into generosity and they give for the first time. And it's just this exponential impact. We are playing a limitless game. The kingdom of God is here and we get to be managers of Jesus's money. We get to be generous with it and make an impact in the lives of people in Rockingham County. Well, let's pray. Uh, Jesus, I, I, I thank you for just a, a willingness to not shy away from, from di- difficult truths, to be honest. Um, the topic of money can be uh, rather shaky for some folks, and, and, and I know that, that a lot of friend, my friends that don't go to church think that the only thing the church wants is their money. Um, well, that's not entirely true, uh, but it, it does take money to advance your kingdom, and I will not be shy about that. It, it, does, it does take generosity and resources to see people take next steps. I pray, Lord, a prayer of generosity over our church across both of our gatherings, that this would be a value that we step into, that we have conversations with our kids of this is how much we give to our church and this is why and sow seeds of generosity and kids that are even at under the age of 10, that it would be a value even for them. Uh, thanks, God, that you give us so many different ways to say we love you, even in our finances, which ultimately belong to you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.